you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. A shooting spree in Atlanta has left eight people dead, including six women of Asian descent. We're going to check in on how community members here are feeling. Plus, universal basic income. They tried it in Stockton, and you might be surprised by the results. It's all ahead. Join me. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Thanks for joining us today. Coming up, we'll talk to the former mayor of Stockton, California. That's Michael Tubbs. He piloted a program to provide people in his city with a universal basic income. And yeah, it paid off. Now he wants to expand that program. We will get into that just ahead. But we start today's show with more on that tragic story out of Atlanta, Georgia. A 21-year-old man has been charged with eight counts of murder after a shooting spree last night that spread across three Atlanta massage parlors. While details are still coming out about this devastating act of violence, there is at least one fact that we do know. Six out of the eight people murdered were of Asian descent. Police say the shooter denied that race was a factor in the killings, but honestly, coming from another community of color, that kind of thing, really hard to believe. After all, last night's killing comes at a time when reports of hate crimes against Asian American Pacific Islanders are at a record high, especially against women, and six of those victims were women. Now, just for some extra context, according to the group Stop AAPI Hate, close to 3,800 anti-Asian incidents were reported in the past year. That's up from 2,800 the year before. Still too many. So... On this heavy day, how are members of our AAPI community here feeling? Let's check in with KPCC's Josie Wong. And Josie, you've talked to several people from the Asian American community here in Southern California since last night. What are some of the reactions that you've been hearing? Overall, people are just feeling intense anger, but also fatigue, Austin. I say fatigue because people say they feel like they've had a target on their back. Um, This whole pandemic as racist rhetoric you know, really ramped up. But folks are also pointing out that racism against Asian Americans is as old as this country and people are just tired. One woman from the South Bay uh, that I've interviewed before, Hong Lee, told me she's been on high alert ever since she was 
verbally attacked last year at a L.A. restaurant after she turned a man down for a date. Now she feels even more tense. She never looks at her phone when she walks anymore because she's worried about being targeted again. Now, even more so. I continue being aware of my surroundings, knowing who's in front of me, behind me, around me, paying attention to where my closest exit is. Wow. Well, Josie, early reports say that the suspect is claiming that race was not a motivation in doing this. Rather, a sex addiction was. That's what he says. But as I mentioned a little bit earlier, most of the victims were Asian. And recent data from the group Stop AAPI Hate shows that a disproportionate amount of Asian women have been targeted in possible hate crimes and incidents this past year. And to be clear, there is also a very long history in this country, especially of Asian women being hypersexualized in Western culture. How is that informing our understanding of the shooting so far and the community response to it as well? Well, Austin, you just, you know, you, you framed it correctly. Asian women are fetishized and exoticized in American culture, in movies, on TV, on the streets, in the racialized catcalling, hearing, we love you long time. It is so part, <sighs> Austin, of being the Asian American woman that none of us are surprised by it anymore. You see it in the case of Hong Lee, who I was mentioning, because, you know, she was attacked after she spurned um, a man's advances. And, uh, you know, there have been, as you were mentioning, uh, about 3,800 self-reported anti-Asian incidents nationwide. This is according to the Stop AAPI Hate Tracker. And women are reporting at more than twice the rate of men. And often what they're experiencing is not just racism and xenophobia, but they're getting that with a nice dollop of misogyny. Because Asian American women know all this. They're experiencing this. That's what makes it so difficult to, for them, for, for us, to separate race and misogyny from the conversation about the Atlanta area shooting case. I mean, the first business the suspect targeted even has Asian in its name. It's uh, Young Asian Massage. I'm talking with KPCC's Josie Wong. And Josie, you corresponded with LAPD this morning because in cities like New York and Seattle, more patrols have been visiting Asian neighborhoods since the attacks in the Atlanta area. And a deputy chief with LAPD told you that they are monitoring the situation and that it's not clear if this attack was motivated by anti-Asian hate. Why is that? You know, Austin, it's a question a lot of us who've been covering attacks on Asians have been asking, you know, what what is a hate crime? One, what constitutes a hate crime? And as it's been explained to me, there's there has to be an underlying crime and, you know, like a murder or physical assault. And you have to couple that with intent motivated by hate, in this case, uh, racial animus against Asians. So my understanding is that police and prosecutors, um, to prove intent, are looking for a hate-filled screed on social media or racial slurs yelled during attack. Without that, law enforcement say it's hard to prove that there was um, race as a motivator um, versus, say, in the case of the Atlanta shootings, Atlanta area shootings, a self-reported sexual addiction. You know, I, uh, in the course of my reporting on this over the last few months, I, I, I did ask an LAPD hate crimes coordinator you know, I said to him, if you're Asian, you know when uh, what's up when you're feeling uh, you're you're experiencing discrimination. You don't need to hear, excuse me, excuse my language, chink or or mm. gook or coronavirus or go back to China to know what's going on. Uh, his reply to me was that you know a strange look or shunning is not in it of itself evidence of bias motivation. Well, what do leaders in the Asian American community here think of that? 
Well, I was on a Zoom call recently with about 70 Asian American leaders, including the journalist uh, Helen Zia. If her name rings a bell, it's because she was the journalist who campaigned to bring justice to Vincent Chen. He's the Chinese American mm-hmm. man who was killed in 1982 in Detroit by two auto workers who, you know, blamed him for. Um, I, I think the uh, auto industry they're suffering. They thought he was Japanese, despite many Asian Americans calling it a hate crime. Chen's killers were put on probation and fined about $3,000 each. They never saw um, a night in jail. And Zia has been following crimes against Asians since and has noticed that many are not treated as hate crimes. And she said something during this Zoom call with these uh, L.A. Asian-American um, leaders uh, on there as well. And she said, quote, you don't even have to utter a single word to make something a hate crime. But for Asian-Americans, there is a higher threshold because so many people don't even think Asian-Americans experience racism, discrimination, bigotry or hate. And uh, that's end quote. Well, you recently spoke to Connie Chung Jo. She's the executive director of the group Asian Americans Advancing Justice. And you talked about that lack of adequate police response to anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents. What kind of reforms has she and other civil rights leaders recommended to make police more able to respond to these types of crimes? She is uh, calling on law enforcement to, um, you know, treat victims of all bias incidents, whether they rise to the level of a hate crime or not, to be treated with um, greater care. Uh, In L.A., police are supposed to take a report of a bias incident, but some community leaders say that police are failing to do these uh, reports consistently. But uh, talking to her last night, she told me a dialogue has started between the community and the LAPD on how to get uh, help to victims such as referral to counseling and perhaps legal aid if they want it. And there's a joint effort underway right now to develop multilingual resource cards that officers can hand out to victims. So if they need it, they can get the culturally appropriate help. Well, at the same time that all of this is happening, Josie, there are other Asian organizations that are actually afraid that this will lead to more policing. That's a concern a lot of communities have, and they're concerned that the criminalization uh, could happen in other communities as well. What are some of the other solutions that the Asian community is discussing to violence like this? This is, in fact, also a concern of Connie Chung Jo from AAJLA. She does not want to see more patrols, like many others in the Asian American community, because of concerns this will lead to police targeting black community, black men. She and other civil rights leaders are asking instead for more public education campaigns to combat hate, more case management for victims, also more diligence by law enforcement in taking those reports of bias. Um, from victims. You know, Joe points to the instance of Hong Lee, who I had mentioned earlier, um, the woman who was harassed in the restaurant. Police initially did not take a report of her being verbally attacked, but as it turned out, the same man who attacked her also attacked other women of color who have since Hmm. come forward. So what these reports do um, is they help to build a record against a repeat uh, offender. And uh, some other folks actually have other ideas about how to better protect the most vulnerable people in the community. And their conversation was revolving around foot patrols through Asian neighborhoods because they feel these communities are being neglected by police. But these patrols often are very controversial because critics feel they'll serve a similar role to police patrols and will also lead to racial profiling. So where do we go from here, Josie? It seems to have taken 
increasingly shocking attacks after attacks. But more elected officials, I've noticed, have been speaking out in recent weeks and with more force. Uh, There is going to be a congressional hearing tomorrow on anti-Asian hate. And one of the people speaking will be Manju Kokarni. She's a co-founder of the Stop AAPI Hate Tracker. And I talked to her last night and we talked about how the Atlanta area shootings are a real wake-up call for a lot of non-Asians. And I asked her about, you know, what can your average person do? You know, when you see something, say something, even if it's just verbal comments, racist jokes, lend your support to them. If there's an incident of discrimination to speak with a manager, potentially file a complaint or help the victim to file a complaint. And Austin, I also want to be um, have a message for uh, you know, Asian Americans who may themselves be experiencing, uh, have experienced some kind of hate incident or crime or a loved one or a friend may have any kind of harassment um, uh, that you want to report but don't want to reach out to the police about. The group um, AAJLA, uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice LA, is offering free legal help in five languages, and you can find information on their website at advancingjustice-la.org. So glad that there's a resource for people. Well, that's KPCC's Josie Wong. And Josie, I wish I could have talked to you under better circumstances, but thank you for making the time. Same here, Austin. Thank you. Well, this has been a challenging year to say the least. Yeah, sometimes it seems like it doesn't stop. There has been a lot of pain, but yes, there's also been some joy in there too. To reflect on where we've been and to think about where we're headed, we've partnered with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture to commission sermons from faith leaders from around our county. Today, we hear from Venerable Sanatavi Hari. He's the Theravada monk at Sarath Chandra Meditation Center in North Hollywood. He offers this reflection titled, The Greatest Blessing, Skillfully Responding to the Situation. Sangha is the glue that holds the Buddhist practice together. During these challenging times, Buddhist practitioners have found it difficult to be separated from their Sangha. The most common question and comment from Buddhist practitioners during COVID times has been, When is the temple opening up again? Since the Buddhist time, Buddhists have sought a place of refuge to come together and both listen to and practice the Dharma. Having a place where the Sangha can meet is an invaluable asset to all Buddhists. This is especially the case for immigrant Buddhist communities in which Buddhist temples are not only a spiritual refuge, but also a cultural and familiar refuge. For many immigrant Buddhists, the temple is the axis of their ethnic communities. For these Buddhists, there is no division between the spiritual and the secular. Their entire worlds converge at the temple where the Sangha comes together. So what can we do now that we are approaching and have endured about a year of being separated from our Sanghas, not being able to meet at the temple As we Buddhists know, the Buddha was a master of skillful means, quick to adapt to new situations, and the exemplary embodiment of patience and endurance. For instance, 
During the time of the Buddha, when the community was faced with the famine, the Buddha allowed his monastics, who traditionally only lived on the alms food offered by the laity, to take part in a meal ticket system that the king has set up as a relief effort. Here we can see how both the Buddha and the Sangha were quick to adapt to changing circumstances. And in a similar way, although we as Buddhists used to rely on seeing each other at the temple, we can now take advantage and adapt to new mediums of coming together. Since the onset of the COVID stay-at-home orders, various Buddhist organizations started taking the practice online, such as Zoom, Facebook Live, YouTube, are just a few examples of where Sangha comes together nowadays. Quite interestingly enough, when it was time for the Buddha to pick up the type of bowls that the Buddhist monastics would use, the Buddha picked the newest technological innovation on bowls, which was the black earthenware bowls. In a similar way, we can be quick to take new innovations that allow us to be together, although we may be physically apart. Buddhists have a long history of being able to adapt and harmonize with new times and places. And it is that adaptability that has allowed Buddhism to endure for over 2,500 years and to have spread throughout the world. Finally, I would like for you to reflect on the Buddha's words from the Mahamangala Sutta, the Discourse on the Highest Blessings, in which the Buddha says, which means, he whose mind remains unmoved when confronted by the problems of the world, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is the highest blessing. Here, unmoved means not agitated, distraught, afflicted, or reactionary to the things in the world. However, this is not a call to inaction but an effort to see things clearly in difficult situations. It is only when our minds are centered, composed, and open that we can properly and skillfully respond to difficult situations when they arise. This mental equipoise grants us the wisdom and power to intelligently manage the vestitudes of our lives. Sukiyote. That was Venerable Sanatavi Hari with his sermon, The Greatest Blessing, Skillfully Responding to the Situation. You can read his text and that of several faith leaders in our community at crcc.usc.edu. You'll also see a report there pinned to that main page titled Bridges Over Troubled Waters. Well, a couple of years back, the city of Stockton tried out an interesting new program. And for reference, Stockton, it's about 50 miles south of Sacramento. Anyway, get this. They selected 125 people in need and gave each one of them $500 a month for two years. Now, it was an early attempt at something called universal basic income. You might have heard of it. And I'm sure you're wondering, so how did it all go down? Well, to quote Maury Povich, the results are in. Former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs joins me to take a look at them. That's ahead. Stay with me. 
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. You're back with Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. Back in 2019, when Michael Tubbs was still mayor of Stockton, California, he announced an ambitious program. Give a select 125 people 500 bucks a month for two years. And they could use the money however they saw fit. No strings attached. That program was called the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED. And a study released earlier this year found that it actually produced overwhelmingly positive results. Many of the people in the program were able to land full-time jobs, pay off debt, and they reported lower rates of depression or anxiety. Now, Tubbs is no longer Stockton's mayor, but he's been recently tapped by California Governor Gavin Newsom to be an economic advisor. He joins me to talk about what he's working on. Michael Tubbs, welcome to Take Two. Thanks so much for having me, Austin. We'll get into what work you'll be doing with the governor in just a minute, but I actually want to ask you about that study that I just mentioned. Now, what Stockton's SEED program provided was essentially what's called universal basic income. But were these kinds of results that I just mentioned there, were they what you expected to see? Honestly, Austin, yes. I mean, partly because I grew up in poverty. Many of my family, many of my friends, many of the people who made me the man that I am were all folks who struggled economically and not because they were dumb, not because they were lazy, but because we know our economy does not work for working people. And I knew that providing people with an income floor wouldn't replace work. But in fact, the $500 would be a stabilizing force to allow them to exercise more agency in terms of the types of jobs they want to take and also giving them the capacity to apply maybe for a, for a full-time job. So I'm mean, so proud that the evidence showed that. You know, I find it so interesting that you've had the experiences that you've had growing up because when people talk about the concept of universal basic income, you might have one person who's talking about the benefits of it based off of theories that they've read. And you might have one person, you know, a detractor saying, you know, this is bad because people will stop working. And neither one of them really have a close connection to what it's like to live uh, as a person, you know, in a family with low income. And so based off of what you saw, you you know people, you know people from firsthand experience. And so you think, okay, I know that these people are not going to squander this opportunity. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, if you could estimate in your head, what kind of return of investment would you say that you got from every a dollar, and this was all private money, by the way, but every dollar that was spent on this program, what kind of return do you think you saw there? See, I need some smart actuaries or like a McKinsey person or some sort of smart <laughs> person that can do this kind of back of the envelope calculation. So I can't give a number, but I think so much of what benefits 
about the program is actually immeasurable. When we talk about people who are saying they can breathe for the first time, when we talk about people who are showing up in their words better as parents or as partners or as neighbors. But to answer your question, Austin, I think if we look at sort of the productivity in terms of people in full-time employment, if you look at sort of the health benefits, um, people not in the emergencies room, people not um, exacerbating our already tasked healthcare system, that money is not even going to the stock market. That money is going straight to the small business. That money is going straight to pay off debt. That money is going straight back to the economy. Well, we've actually spoken to a couple people in the SEED program, and here's one. Here's Laura Kidd Plummer last October, and she told us what life was like before and then after she started receiving the payments. I was hitting food banks like crazy just trying to eat, let alone pay the bills that I had incurred during this time of not having any income. Uh, when the money started rolling in, though, it made me able to start paying some of the stuff off that I had been using during this time. I've even paid my car off. Well, Michael Tubbs, what are some of the things that you've heard from recipients of this extra income and maybe how it's helped them? Folks said that the $500 allowed them to buy dentures because they just couldn't scrape up the money to afford the dentures without sacrificing sort of other things that need to be paid. Um, we heard so much from women in particular and caregivers about how the $500 allowed them to do something for themselves, <laughs> to, to take some time off, to rest. Um, there's one gentleman, Tomas, that talked about how the $500 allowed him to bet on himself with his words. And he took time off of his part-time job without paid time off to apply for a full-time job. He lost that $200, but he had the $500 in the guaranteed income to make up for that. And because of that, he took the risk. He was able to get a full-time job with benefits, makes more money, works less hours, and is able to really help his kids. He, had, he said he discovered things about his kids he didn't know because he was working all the time. This is Austin Cross in for A. Martinez, and we're talking to former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs, who launched a successful universal basic income program two years back. Well, Michael, you're working to take this kind of program wider now throughout the state and maybe even the country. Well, why are you thinking of doing that? Well, we're going international, actually. I've, spent, I've been spending a lot of time. International? Folks, yeah, folks in England. Um, wow. I've been reaching out. And then we have Mayors for Guaranteed Income, which is a coalition of over 40 mayors throughout this country, including the mayor, my great friend, the great mayor of L.A., Eric Garcetti, um, and others, um, who are all saying we're going to stand up and pilot a guaranteed income in our state. And then in my role with um, Governor Newsom, uh, my job is to advocate. Um, so really excited about the opportunity to kind of scale the work, but very crystal clear that it has to be a federal policy because the federal government can deficit spend. State governments can't do that. Local governments can't do that. But the federal government can. Well, Michael Tubbs, former Stockton mayor, I now want to ask you about your work with Governor Gavin Newsom, because I understand that the position, it is an unpaid advisory role, but I still have a two-parter question. It is, what is he hoping that you can help him with? And how do you hope that you can use this position to get traction for a broader UBI program in the state? And we could start with ending child poverty. It would be epic if we ended poverty in California. And, I, and that's sort of what I'm endeavoring to do with the governor's blessing. And I think the governor, he's been a, a huge ally, a, a mentor of sorts, and has always kind of challenged and questioned and pushed to do more, to think bigger, et cetera. So I think he wants me to push kind of state government, to push him, to push us all, to really live up to our, to our values as a state. 
I know one thing that California is certainly known for is trying out things before the rest of the nation takes them on. We certainly uh, considered legislation uh, on reparations or considering reparations, for example. We've obviously led in the clean energy space. And I'm wondering if you see this as having a better chance starting in California first before it maybe expands to something national. Because when you launched the pilot program for SEED, you could set the rules because it was funded through private donations. But if new programs are funded by taxpayer dollars, it doesn't really seem likely that you'd be able to just hand out cash with no strings attached. And I know just based off of the political climate that we're facing right now, there is an incredible amount of political pressure against anything that is viewed as a handout. And I hate to say that word, but I mean, I think that there's a large portion of the country, especially comment sections on certain conservative <laughs> news sites uh, that would call this a handout. What do you think about that? If we were to frame things as handouts, historically, those handouts have excluded people who look like me and other uh, folks of color. Even the past five years, the previous president's signature achievement that he campaigned on to his donors was a handout to billionaires, the Trump tax cuts. And if we reverse the Trump tax cuts, that's $2 trillion dollars that would provide $500 a month to every family in this country making $125,000 or less, right? So I think we should have a conversation if we want to about handouts. Well, let's start with billionaire handouts. We can have that conversation. I would just argue that that conversation has to be focused on who was the largest beneficiary of handouts, which aren't the essential workers, which aren't the farm workers, which aren't the caregivers of domestic workers. Well, I want to go back and focus on this for just a second because, you know, the country is obviously still reeling from the major economic effects of this pandemic. And Congress just barely, a party line vote, just barely passed a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. And according to some estimates, creating national universal basic income programs, it could cost about $3 trillion, that's with a T, $3 trillion every year. Despite the benefits, do you think that the country can afford this kind of idea? I think we have seen very clearly how expensive it is to have so much economic insecurity in our country. So I don't think we can afford to continue to operate with 20th century paradigms in the 21st century world. And I say that because in addition to the benefits, a guaranteed income also represents smart contingency planning for emergencies and pandemics. There's earthquakes, there's fires, and we know that so well in California. There's floods. All these things are expensive, and they're more so expensive because people don't have the economic resilience going into when these things happen. Um, I also think that in terms of price, there's ways to scaffold it. We don't have to start with universal. We can start with a guarantee. We can start like we saw in the last stimulus bill, the American Rescue Plan, where we literally have now a guaranteed income for parents who make $125,000 or less through, the, through a monthly allowance for children. Now, if we truly invest in the American people, it may get sticker shock for a little bit, but over 5, 10, 15, 20 years with increased productivity, increase in health, we'll reap the benefits and then some. Before I let you go, Michael Tubbs, as an advisor to the governor, what's your first suggestion that you're going to make to, to him? Number one, build on his leadership in terms of equitable COVID response. So ensuring that the businesses have been the hardest hit, which we know are black businesses, minority-owned businesses, get special attention with this money, that we do something for women who have left the workforce and really identify sort of where are some of the problems and how can we use this American Rescue Plan dollars 
To address those, number three, there's a bunch of mayors throughout the state that are looking at guaranteed income, so at least seeing if there's any ways the state could be supportive. Um, and then also a Central Valley strategy, that there's a has to be a way we can offer incentives and things for companies to move into the Central Valley so folks aren't looking to other places in the country for lower cost of living or, or lower uh, price per square foot. But that's my short list for now. Michael Tubbs, former Stockton mayor and special advisor for economic mobility and opportunity with the Newsom administration. I wish you the best of luck and thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say I'm loud, say I'm clear for the whole round world to hear. Well, here's something I didn't know until recently. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association of Golden Globes fame It's made up of 87 L.A.-based journalists, and their choices, you know this, are pretty darn influential. But the surprise for me, though, was finding out that in their ranks, there are zero black journalists. Yeah, not a one. But change is coming. The Hollywood Reporter's Rebecca Keegan will swing by in just a minute with more. Earlier this month, Rose Cerna received a letter in the mail. Your tenancy is being terminated by reason of the fact The that journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist senior housing reporter David Wagner. I help Southern Californians, including renters and landlords, navigate the region's affordable housing crisis. And I help you stay on top of the ever-changing renter protections and housing policies. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. You remember the song from that car commercial back in the 90s? I do. Well, the organization behind the Golden Globes promises to have a more global-looking membership. Plus, movie theaters in L.A. throw open the doors again. But what are the precautions in place to make sure you can breathe in the smell of $40 small popcorn without breathing in the coronavirus, too? Looks like it's time to go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I love that stinger. As usual, Rebecca Keegan is our guide. She's senior editor for film at The Hollywood Reporter. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Austin. Rebecca, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, they award the Golden Globes, and they are famously this small group of socialites, sort of actual journalists and more, but not among that group, any black people. And that might be changing soon from what I hear. What's happening? Well, this whole conversation was sparked by an L.A. Times article that came out before the Golden Globes a few weeks ago, noting a number of issues with the group, including the fact that it has no black members That sparked an outcry for changes from talent in Hollywood, from groups like Time's Up, and this week from an organization of more than 100 Hollywood publicists saying they won't encourage their clients to participate in HFPA events events, 
or interviews unless the group makes quote unquote transformational change. In response to this, the HFPA has promised that it'll have 13% black membership by the next Golden Globes. Now we should do some back of the envelope math for people, Rebecca, because there are 87 members currently. And if they add exactly 13 black people, then they reach 100 members uh, and that goal of 13%. But is that really the only solution? What about cycling out some members to bring in some fresh blood? Yeah, that's what Time's Up is advocating the HFPA do. In fact, they're saying the HFPA should make all of their current members reapply for membership. You know, they should disband their board and start from scratch. That's a pretty radical move that it's hard to see what incentive current members have to vote to lose their own status. Um, But this is really kind of an existential crisis for the group. If all of Hollywood says we don't want to participate with the HFPA, then the members lose the access that gets them their work. So to be clear, all the people who made the, you know, out of touch nominations, they get to stay. And then someone at the organization is going to scour LinkedIn for black journalists, then copy and paste a friendly little message. And yes, I might be speaking from experience here, but is that kind of what we're looking at, Rebecca? That sounds likely. Also worth noting that these journalists would be getting invited at a time when the group is under enormous scrutiny and many of the perks that have made it attractive to people in the past, like, say, travel or gifts, are now going to be serious no-nos. Wow. Well, this move on their part came about because, like you mentioned, pressure from publicists in Hollywood. Why were they specifically frustrated about the ranks of the association, though? Well, it's interesting that the publicists are speaking up now, or at least interesting to me. They were in the best positions of anybody in town to know who the HFPM members are and how they roll. They're the ones at the press conference that has no black journalists. Um, they know how their clients are treated by the HFPA. Uh, nevertheless, it, it seems like the LA Times article and the and Times Up coming out and speaking against the organization sort of made has made it safe for other people to express their longtime grievances about the group and about some of the biases that are reflected in their choices. Well, Rebecca, I will give the HFPA some credit because they're also making some other efforts. They say they're going to rework their membership selection process. And once they onboard said black people, they'll essentially ask their advice on how to make things more diverse and inclusive. And here's one I actually like from their list of things. They say they're going to be transparent about their progress when it comes to making things more diverse so we can keep them accountable. But Rebecca, let's say all these changes are made. Do you think that films and TV shows that might have been overlooked in the past will finally get a more fair shot during award season since the Golden Globes, they tend to be very influential? Well, I think if you look at the impact of the Academy, the Film Academy's inclusion drive over the last several years, that has had a real impact on what films get nominated for Oscars. The Academy is several years into that drive. They've doubled their number of women members. They've doubled their number of members of color. And this year, for the first time, there are two women nominated for Best Director. There are many, many um, uh, Black, Asian, and Asian-American nominees, uh, a historic number, actually. So that seems to suggest that when you diversify the group making the choices, the choices change. Well, I do want to ask you about the Oscar nominations because they are out. And in normal years, the films that get a nod usually see a little bump in the box office. But this year, Rebecca, a year unlike any other, that road to success is a lot more rocky. Tell us more. 
Well, this year's class of Best Picture contenders includes eight titles. Three of those are from streamers, and so they never even made a major theatrical push. Among the remaining five, a lot of them were made available early in the home. Uh, So, for instance, Judas and the Black Messiah was on HBO Max. Now it's in theaters. Nomadland is in theaters. It's also available on Hulu. Um, Promising Young Woman was available on demand, also in theaters. So that will cut into the number of people who are going to see the movies in theaters if they've already had access to them at home. And oh, by the way, theaters are still at 25% capacity here in LA and in New York. A lot of people don't feel quite ready to go back uh, if they aren't vaccinated. Um, So, you know, the theatrical performance of these movies is definitely not going to be what it would be in a normal year. I want to ask you more about theaters reopening in just a minute, but I'm really curious, have any filmmakers and studios actually figured out how to still turn a profit on these films without them being seen by big audiences? Well, they are being seen, um, just not big theater audiences. Mm -hmm. And when you consider the math behind the different types of releases studios have been experimenting with during the pandemic, it's a little hard to parse the numbers. Um, But so, for instance, Nomadland, I mentioned, it's a Fox Searchlight movie currently playing in theaters, also on Hulu. Disney owns both Hulu and Searchlight, so they profit from people seeing it in theaters. And if somebody signs up for Hulu because they want to see Nomadland, they profit there. It's also a really inexpensive movie, and so it's quite easy for a studio to make its money back. It's noteworthy that this year there's no giant blockbusters like a Black Panther or an Avatar that are nominated for Best Picture. Studios held those kind of movies back this year because it would have been impossible to recoup their investments during the pandemic. So there's no big box office films in the Best Picture race at all. You know, we only have about 30 seconds left, Rebecca, but I really want to know some theaters in L.A., they have started to reopen and The Hollywood Reporter was actually at one theater to catch those tickets being ripped. What did it look like? Yeah, my colleague was at the AMC in Century City, which is operating at 25% capacity, requiring masks, except when people are eating or drinking. Um, A real mix of people were out, some kids, some older adults who had been vaccinated, um, and people seemed pretty happy to be there. They burst into applause before the movie even started. Um, Also, in Burbank, at the Burbank AMC, director Chris Nolan went to a screening of Judas and the Black Messiah there, so some industry folks getting out as well. That's Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film at The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca Keegan, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Austin. More Take Two coming up. Stay with us. People get ready. There's a train a-coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is how do LA is your connection to Los Angeles? Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Back now to Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. We now turn to a different kind of history podcast that re-examines how we view and 
how we remember events of the past. It's called You're Wrong About, and it's hosted by Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. Here's a clip from their episode revisiting the Y2K bug. So tell me about what you uh, what you know about Y2K. The fear of it was that like all of the computers and like automated things and electronic things would break and then all of our systems would fall apart and then we would just not have a grid anymore. Okay, they've got my attention. Anybody of a certain age probably remembers Y2K. Well, Nick Kwa, <laughs> host of the Alias Studios show Servant of Pod, spoke with co-host Sarah Marshall about her podcast and he joins me now. Hey, Nick. Hello, hello. Well, first off, can you tell us a bit about journalist and co-host Sarah Marshall? So Sarah Marshall is a writer, critic, uh, and podcaster based in Portland, Oregon. And I think her general interest and approach is best described as, you know, revisiting a particular misunderstood event figure or phenomenon, you know, that stuff that she handles in, in Yorong about. But she tends to sort of like approach subjects with a really sort of high degree of empathy. That's that that's often really interesting. And these days, in addition to working on You're Wrong About, she also does another podcast called Why Are Dads? Question uh, mark, which frankly <laughs> takes a similar approach to the notion of dads and dad figures in culture. So on her show, Nick, You're Wrong About, uh, she and her co-host quote reconsider a person or event that's been miscast in the public imagination. At least that's what the website description says, anyway. But can you elaborate on what that actually means? Yeah, so I should say that this sort of notion and concept of revisiting past events, it's you know, it's a fairly common sort of conceit among podcasts. Uh, among other shows, NPR's Throughline does this really well. Uh, ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast does this to some extent. Uh, but You're Wrong About is distinct for a few reasons. First of all, when they dive deep, they dive really, really deep. Uh, they do a ton of research. And, and the thing about the show's structure is that it's basically a conversational podcast where it's these two people going over the research and drilling really deep into what the what that sort of literature reveals about a big event or a phenomenon that we, that we seem to remember or misremember. Um, and the second thing about the show that's really interesting is that it's essentially a wholesale exercise in like a critical theory of culture, that the sort of big media moments or, or phenomena we seem to remember, they all, they're always sort of rendered through, uh, you know, large mainstream media systems or, or sort of broad systems of media, uh, which means they always compromise versions of what the truth is when they finally sort of settle into our collective memory, kind of like a game of telephone uh, writ large. So the show really embraces that idea and they really sort of grapple and push back against it. All right. So where are some examples of that? Because I know last week they devoted an episode to Vanessa Williams. <laughs> yeah. So like that's a pretty good example of how like the show really runs the gamut uh, and their choices are often pretty surprising. So you have topics that, uh, you know, some people could consider typical in terms of like this is a quote unquote misremembered event. So the Y2K bug is a really good example of that. You know, Stanford Prison Experiment is a good sort of cultural phenomenon. That, that That's a good example of that. But then they'll also do something amorphous like, um, you know, the notion of killer clowns or the notion of losing relatives to Fox News. What is what is true about that phenomena? Wow. What is not true? But then they've also spent a lot of time on celebrity and public figures. There's an entire collection of episodes that's about uh, maligned or misunderstood women from Tanya Harding to Courtney Love. And in large part, they sort of hammer home the public figure uh, angle to draw out the effects of how these misunderstandings of pop culture really impact these people's lives and legacies. Wow, I'm really wondering, Nick, how are the topics actually chosen for this podcast? Like, what's the process behind deciding which person or event to focus on? Yeah, so I, I asked about that, and here's what Sarah said. Generally, what I'm most interested in is just trying to take people on a little time travel trip and sort of form some kind of intimacy with with some kind of person, 
some kind of figure in a historical narrative that makes it more complicated. Hmm. And to complicate it, you know, maybe because there's new information you can bring to light or because I can do some analysis that is smart. But mainly, I think, once you feel the people in the stories you tell to be real people, yeah. uh, things become different. And I think that's the key thing for me. It's Austin Cross in for A. Martinez, and we're talking with Nick Kwa, host of Servant of Pod and founder of the Hot Pod newsletter. So why did she and Michael Hobbs decide to make this show? You know, it's a pretty straightforward reason, uh, because you got to have side projects. Um, my understanding is that Sarah and Michael sort of knew each other somewhat professionally before starting the show. Uh, and they were really big fans of each other's work and, and approaches. And it was just one of those collaborations that that come out of mutual professional respect. All right, Nick. So You're Wrong About is actually an independent podcast. So what does that mean exactly? And how does its independence affect how they produce the show? Yeah, so the um, notion of being uh, independent is becoming an increasingly squishy concept in the podcast business uh, and in the media business more generally, I think. Uh, but in this context, we're really talking about uh, how the You're Wrong About crew remains ultimately kind of beholden to themselves and how they want to do things. Here, here's Sarah's talking a little bit about that. We're independent. We're not working for a network. We don't have a requirement to do X number of episodes per year. We're very lucky in that respect. And what that also means is that, you know, if the timing gets to be too strenuous or if I'm, you know, working on a story and if I'm really not finding my way in and I don't want to try and put something out that I'm not happy with or if I need to back away and, and take time off of it, then I can. And I think something that, that that freedom has allowed me to do is figure out how can I approach these stories in ways that are sustainable. And I think one of them is with this, you know, this very long, very long running OJ Simpson series that we have. OJ Simpson series. Okay. Okay. Uh, can you tell us about that, Nick? So I think the sort of Dare OJ Simpson miniseries is kind of a great example of how kind of interesting and, and weird the independent approach can be. So over the course of the entire show, they've consistently sort of revisited this O.J. Simpson miniseries. Like, they, they release a new episode on this thread every couple of months. And each episode basically takes either a different angle or a different sort of figure within the O.J. Simpson sort of saga and go really, really, really deep into their story. It's almost like a gig, it's like a Rashomon-like uh, effect. And, you know, it's weird because, like, they'll do five or six episodes about other stuff and then they'll come back to the O.J. Simpson series. And I don't think you can do that. <laughs> I don't think that translates very well in sort of a non-independent sort of publishing setting. In some ways, it sounds almost like the perfect topic because there are so many aspects to the O.J. Simpson trial and a lot of the nuance is lost over time. Uh, I'm really wondering, Nick, how common are independent podcasts nowadays and you know, where does You're Wrong About land in the indie podcast landscape? Well, um, indie podcasts are, are still super common. They're in many ways like the lifeblood of the podcast ecosystem, even as we see sort of more money come in, more celebrities come in, more, more sort of big companies come in. Um, the whole notion of like anybody is able to sort of start their own podcast sort of leads us to structurally understand that like independent podcasts will always outnumber uh, in terms of just like the sheer presence. Um, even though like maybe most of those podcasts won't get like more than 100, 150 listeners. However, You're Wrong About is a very, very big and a very, very popular independent podcast. And it's my understanding that, um, you know, they derive a good amount of, of a living from it. And they are, they're happy with the way things are operating on their own at this point. 
All right, Nick Qua is host of the LA Studios podcast, Servant of Pod. New episodes are out every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for Take Two today. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez, who you might know by now has been guest hosting on NPR's Morning Edition. If you missed any of today's episode, I get it. You got a lot going on, but we also had some great conversations today. So if you missed any of it, you can listen online wherever you get your pods. By the way, if you're on Twitter, it's been a rough couple of years, right? That is a whole other conversation. But you can always follow Take Two at Take Two, and you can follow me too. I'm at Austin Cross. To quote my guy, A. Martinez, thanks for trusting us with your time. More Take Two tomorrow. Have a great Wednesday. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming and six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.